0: So, Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life. And now, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to preach so, so that that's not just something we say, but something that we actually believe. So we're asking for your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, to, to give us faith in your name. Amen. Amen. I think we have some late words of just arriving and interrupt to bring this to you. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life seeking human victims it's hard for us here to believe what we're reporting to you but it does seem to be a fact those poor people in the in the movie are having trouble with the walking dead let's hope that's not what vince was singing about right there ain't no grave gonna hold this body down. <laughs> Zombies uh, look like us on the, on the outside, but, but they're dead on the inside. They're empty of that undefinable, elusive, mysterious quality that, or property that, that we call life. They, they look like us. And so how do you know when you see one? Well, number one, they're stiff, because they, they really are stiffs. And, and number two, they usually travel in groups. They don't think or feel for themselves, so they usually form a crowd. Number three, zombies feed on the living. Being dead, they hunger for life, even though they don't know exactly what it is, they hunger for life. They hunger uh, for the, the body and the blood of the living. We're all fascinated by zombies, as evidenced by all of our zombie movies. And I think we do worry about some sort of zombie apocalypse and the horrifying thought that we might get bit by a zombie and become one. Many of you probably do wonder if you've seen one or perhaps sat next to one in, in church. I mean, maybe you've been tempted to run from church because you felt surrounded by a bunch of empty-headed, non-thinking, stiff people that want to suck the life out of you and eat your brains. <laughs> zombies eat brains. It's just important that you know that. You know that. I mean, maybe you have a strong suspicion that what God really wants is Zombies unthinking unfeeling meat robots to do his unthinking dispassionate will you might even suspect that he wants to eat your brains and suck the life out of you cuz it appears that that's exactly what he's done with so many of the people that claim to be his his followers even those old jesus movies you know i mean be honest jesus looks stoned he walks and talks like a zombie But the Jesus that we've met in the Gospel of Matthew appears to be anything but a zombie. I mean, great crowds just, they want to follow him because it's like everywhere he goes, he just exudes life. I mean, we just read how in chapter 4, everyone he touches gets healed. Jesus exudes life, and he's like a walking library of wisdom. That's like the living knowledge of good and evil. Jesus is no zombie. But in our text today, I think he warns us about zombies. So anyway, we all, we all fear the, the walking dead. We all have a fear of zombies who want to eat our flesh and, and, of course, vampires who want to drink our blood. Well, Jesus doesn't want to eat your brain. I need to tell you that. Or suck the life from your body. But at one point he did say something rather disturbing. Do you remember? This is my body. Eat it. This is my blood. Drink it. I mean, that's a little insulting if you think about it. Who does he think that who does he think we are? Well, anyway, Matthew chapter 4, our text. Jesus uh, comes preaching, remember, and I think this summarizes what what he's saying. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He heals everybody in the great crowd that's following him. He exudes life, and people just drink it up. But then seeing the crowd, he climbs this little hill, he sits down, and he begins to teach, saying, Blessed are the poor. In spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the mourning. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you persecuted for, for my sake. He equates righteousness with himself. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And now verse 17... Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, why would he say that? Do not think. It must have been because they were tempted to think at that point, the law and the prophets just like don't matter anymore. Jesus just said that they were blessed didn't he? Um, that, they were the, that they were the salt of the earth and light of the world. So these common folks knew they were no experts in the law. That was the scribes. And they weren't known for keeping the law. That was the Pharisees. So, so if this grace was real, what Jesus had just said, that blessed are, blessed are you, you're the salt, you're the light. If this grace was real, maybe the law and the prophets just didn't matter anymore. I mean, maybe that's what they thought. A few months ago, I was reading comments under one of our Facebook posts on the topic of the relentless love of God, and someone uh, commented, um, they, they typed in there, this is such wonderful news. Now I don't have to go to church anymore. And all these people were liking the comment, and I, I just wanted to, I wanted to cry. I mean, imagine if one of my children said, Dad, thanks for forgiving me all that, that money. I bought. Forgive me all the money that I borrowed from you. That is good news. <laughs> now I don't have to come to Thanksgiving anymore, hang out with you anymore. Imagine if my bride uh, said to me, Peter, thank you so much for promising to always love me. That's such good news. Now, now I don't have to make love to you anymore. I just want to cry verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, literally to fully fill them. Jesus makes it sounds like the law and the prophets are empty of something, or maybe our obedience is empty of something that needs to be filled with his something. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, fully fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. I mean, I hate the thought when people think that's what I'm teaching. Therefore, whoever relaxes when the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law and the prophets. That's a reference to Scripture. That is the, the Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus read and quoted all the time. The law just by itself is a reference, probably, to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. These commandments may be a reference to the Ten Commandments, as some scholars think, or, or maybe the commandments that Jesus is going to talk about in just the next few paragraphs, as other scholars think, or, or maybe every commandment in Scripture. I don't know. But asking how Jesus fulfills them all is, is really pretty fascinating and asking how neither a jot nor tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished is also kind of fascinating because it's rather unclear in Scripture when, in fact, all is accomplished. You remember that as Jesus hung on the tree, he said, it is accomplished, it is finished. And St. Paul uh, refers to that or refers to Jesus as the end of the ages or the eons. In the Revelation, John sees the sky roll up and the stars fall. Matthew 24, Jesus talks about birth pains and the stars falling from heaven, and all the tribes of the earth seeing the Son of Man, all the tribes of the earth seeing the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Then in Matthew 26, 64, to the high priest, the day of his crucifixion, Jesus says this, listen closely, from now on, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on. I mean, that clearly implies that for the last 2,000 years, people have been seeing heaven and earth like pass away and Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven to fill all things. It's It's like space and time are a womb from which we are born into eternity, beyond space and time. Or maybe space and time are like an emptiness that gets filled With eternity, that is the manifest presence of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Well, when that happens, maybe the law passes away, but only because it is accomplished, not because it doesn't matter anymore. Anyway, Jesus then says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the the kingdom. And, and that's interesting because least and greatest are kind of they're kind of bizarre c- concepts in the kingdom. But, but whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in, in the kingdom. And and you see that is also a bit confusing because Jesus seems to relax some of these commandments in the next few paragraphs. If he's referring to the Ten Commandments, Jesus seems to relax the Sabbath commandments. I mean, the scribes and the Pharisees get on them all throughout the gospel for that one. If by commandments he's referring to other commandments in the Pentateuch, he surely seems to relax this one from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. You shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and hand for hand. If by commandments Jesus is referring to the ritual law, He sure seems to relax the commandment about eating the bread of the presence in the temple and all the commandments about not drinking the blood. That's his parting shot. He says, this is my body, eat it. This is my blood, drink it. I mean, it's no wonder that the early Christians were accused of being cannibals and vampires. Do you know that? People actually thought that's what they were. Well, Jesus seems to relax all these commandments, but Jesus says, I did not come to abolish, but fulfill the law and the prophets. Later in Matthew, Jesus is going to say that the law and the prophets depend on two commandments. That's so really one commandment. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel. Listen to this. This is the imperative tense. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not two. He's not like love and the opposite of love or something like that. You've got to get this. He's one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words shall be, will be on your heart. And he says the second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, it's a command. Hear that God is one. God is not fragmented. It's a command and a promise. You will love. The words will be written on your heart. In John 12, Jesus says something amazing that nobody pays attention to. Verse 50, he says, I know that his commandment, the Father's commandment, singular like one commandment, I know that his commandment is eternal life. What a commandment. And yet Jesus is the life, and Jesus is the word. So the Father's commandment is his word. He speaks it, and creation happens. Reality happens. And the Father's commandment is eternal life, eternal of the age to come, life of the age to come, beyond these ages. And the Father's commandment is love. God's Law is a description of, of love that is life, that is reality, and human laws are an attempt to further define God's law, and, and they're important. Human laws are important. You, you know why? Because we're idiots. We're idiots. We don't know. We really don't know good from evil. Every parent knows this. I mean, little kids are just absolutely adorable, and they are so very, very, very full of life, but they're idiots. And so you got to make up all these laws just so they don't kill themselves. John, you shall not hit your sister in the head with your truck. Elizabeth, you shall not bite your brother, and now I'm going to bite you just to show you what it feels like. Bite for bite, scratch for scratch. By the way, I don't think I ever actually bit Elizabeth, but our pediatrician told us that we should, just so she would know what it feels like. She bit, I did this, one day she bit Susan in the behind, left teeth marks. I mean, it was got to be a problem. I mean, if it weren't for laws, my kids would have killed each other or themselves I think we're all tempted to think that breaking the law makes us free. But we know that breaking good laws, breaking God's law, makes us dead. If not physically dead, at least psychically dead. Breaking the law turns us into unloving, unthinking, unfeeling zombies. And yet, just making laws also makes us want to break them. For Coleman, I made this law. I think I told you this. It still just blows my mind that this was a rule at our house. No eating dirt. <laughs> I was worried that he'd, like, kill himself or make some kind of serious damage to his internal organs, but, but I think my law made him eat more dirt. And, and I can relate to his, like, whatever it was, one- or two-year-old reasoning. Yahoo! I'm free. Dad's not the boss of me. I'm free. I get that. I'd find him in the backyard, dirt caked all around his lips. I'd say, Coleman, were you eating dirt? No, daddy, I wasn't eating dirt. My law tempted him to eat dirt and then lie about eating dirt. We made laws about words they could say and words they couldn't say. But the law turned them into, like, little Nazis. We'd have people over for dinner, and one of our guests would use the word but or something. They'd all go, hey, Mom, he just said, Mr. Rinky just said but. I think I told you this, too. I, I tried to explain to them that you could say but if it was a conjunction But they weren't allowed to say it if it was a noun. And then I explained the difference between conjunctions and and nouns. One night we were traveling in the van late at night, and a fight broke out in the back between Coleman and Elizabeth. And all of a sudden, Coleman just lost it. And he, he yells at the top of his lungs, Elizabeth, you butthead! And then total silence in the van. You could feel the fear descend on the van. And then out of the darkness from the back seat, I hear Coleman yelling, Dad, 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 it was a conjunction. It was a conjunction. It was a conjunction. (laughs) Conjunction head. Laws, you see, usually don't capture our meaning. They often distract from our meaning and they can even crucify the meaning and then make you hate the meaning. Laws can tell you when you're wrong, but they don't seem to have much power to make you right. In fact, they can make you even more wrong. They describe the good, but they can't make you good. They usually just reveal that you're not so good, but actually kind of evil, maybe even dead. Several years ago, we had Philip and Janet Yancey over for dinner. That was a huge deal for me. Because Philip was my favorite living author at, at the time. And they had just started attending my church, probably back around 95 or so. So Susan and I sat the kids down. And I said, okay, guys, we, we need to make some rules. There will be no stories about passing gas. The following words are forbidden. but booger, and we had a few others. And Elizabeth, you may not tell about the time when you were two and you found a full can of beer on the coffee table and you drank it and walked in the wall and fell over and we had to put you to bed. You can't, you cannot tell that story. We laid down the law. Maybe not God's law, but, but my law, uh, interpreting God's law, be kind to guests, or my law for impressing the guests. I, I figured that the Yanceys wouldn't be interested in an unbroken stream of second-grade booger stories, but in my deep biblical wisdom and the casual, fun-loving, free, wholesome nature of my godly family. That's... Well, we all had dinner, and the kids were very good in one way and yet they were entirely stiff, like little zombies. Children are often zombies around unknown results, but mine were like twice as zombified as, as usual, and I knew why. In their minds, they were reviewing the list of unspeakable words and untellable stories, which made them even all the more want to tell, and yet even become more afraid uh, to tell, and all the more focus on themselves, trapped within themselves, and unable to connect With all of us They were trying to live by my law And they were dying by my law When normally, naturally They were just the life of the party Without even trying You know, Paul says something Fascinating in Romans 7 That I wish more theologians Paid attention to It's verse 9 He writes that once he was alive Apart from the law That means that at one time the Apostle Paul was like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But then he writes that when the commandment came, like knowledge of good and evil taken from from a tree, he writes sin lived and I died. He died. But then he goes on to explain, this is really what the whole book of Romans is kind of about, that when Christ came, he, being dead, died. Being dead, died and began to live and never die, eternal life. He talks as if we've all been zombies ever since we were like little kids, one or two years old, but but now we can die to death and begin to live. But it's not the law that sets us free. The law describes life to me, but through sin it produces death within me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Well, at dinner with the Yanceys, it felt like my adorable, fun-loving, beautiful kids were under a curse, Cursed until finally Becky cracked. I think she was about three, four maybe. I think Janet said something and and Becky laughed and then she exclaimed, that's like the time Coleman then And then all of a sudden her eyes got big. She put her hand over her mouth and she she said, I'm sorry, I wasn't supposed to say uh, that. Janet looked at Becky, and she said, What, what do, you, do you mean, Becky? And Becky, went, um, uh, well, uh, uh, she looked nervously at me. She looked nervously at, at Susan. Stumbling, bumbling through her words, Janet interrupted her and said, What do you mean you're not supposed to say that? Well, um, I, um, Janet stopped her and said, Becky, is there like a list of things you're not supposed to say in front of us? <laughs> And Becky, finding herself stuck between my law and God's law, looked at Janet, looked at me, looked back at Janet, and went, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. I remember Janet smiled, and she said, oh, wow, Becky. Tell us everything on the list. (laughs) Becky looked at me, and I nodded. I mean, what was I supposed to do at that point? And we spent the rest of the evening talking and laughing about boogers, burps, passing gas, and unspeakable words in the time that two-year-old Elizabeth found the beer on the, on the coffee table, drank the whole thing, walked to the wall, fell over, and went to bed. <laughs> Technically, the kids broke my law. The Hebrew word for that is Mishnah. But I think we all fulfilled God's law, which is truth, love, and life. Actually, I don't think we broke laws so much as confess that sometimes we all did. We all confessed our broken humanity, and our little zombies came to life. I mean, they were salt and light, and they were the life of the party without even trying. Well, anyway, Jesus did say, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Whoever does the least of these commandments and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, and now the kicker. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, That's the kicker, because the scribes and Pharisees were considered the absolute champions at knowing the law and keeping the law. Scribe is often translated uh, lawyer, Because these guys were religious lawyers. Pharisee literally means separated one because these guys viewed law-keeping as a competitive sport and they had entirely separated themselves from the rest of the pack. The lawyers invented a gazillion laws to make sure people didn't break God's law and nobody worked harder at keeping all the laws than the Pharisees. I mean, they worked and they worked and they worked. Even the Sabbath law. They worked harder at resting than anybody you've ever met. They worked. And yet... Matthew 25, this is what Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you. Now, I don't know if when he says woe, he's angry or sad or all of the above, but he just says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Do you hear that? Jesus called them walking tombs, tombs that look alive but are full of death, and they feed on the living, perhaps even the righteous. And righteousness, remember, isn't a thing, but a person. The law describes righteousness. The law describes righteousness, but but we learn that Jesus is righteousness. The Pharisees do not only hunger for righteousness, they crucify righteousness, eat righteousness, and then boast in their own righteousness. The the dead bones that fill their bellies. See, Jesus is calling them zombies. Or double zombies. Zombies. Listen to this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus is talking as if we're all zombies at least since the age of one, two, three, or something, ever since we saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes, ever since we first gained the knowledge of good and evil. You know, God did say, the day you eat of it, you will die. Jesus is talking like we're all zombies, and these lawyers, Pharisees, and are, are they're like double zombies or maybe quadruple zombies because they just keep increasing the sin because they see that the tree is to be desired to make one wise, and they keep trying to feed on that tree in order to make themselves wise. They keep taking knowledge of good and evil. I think that's the law. They keep taking knowledge of good and evil to justify themselves. That means make themselves righteous. (laughs) You understand? This is the tree, and on it is the knowledge of good, (laughs) I think another way to say that is wisdom, and righteousness, and life, and love. We are all hungry for him, but how are we going to get him? We're zombies. So Matthew writes that Jesus came preaching, repent. That means change your thinking. You're thinking about this wrong. Change your thinking. And this is quite a change in thinking. Maybe we're not the living, afraid of the dead. Maybe we're the dead, afraid of the life. And yet lusting for life and at the same time confused about life and terrified of the life.
1: And doing with my life. I'm so pale. I should get out more. I should eat better. My posture is terrible. I should stand up straighter. People would respect me more if I stood up straighter. What's wrong with me? I just want to connect. Why can't I connect with people? Oh, right. It's because I'm dead. I shouldn't be so hard on myself. I mean, we're all dead. This girl's dead. That guy's dead. That guy in the corner is definitely dead. Jesus, these guys look awful. I wish I could introduce myself, but I don't remember my name anymore. I mean, I think it started with an R, but that's all I have left. I have a hard time piecing together how this whole apocalypse thing happened. Could have been chemical warfare, or an airborne virus, or a radioactive outbreak monkey. But it doesn't really matter. This is what we are now. This is a typical day for me. I shuffle around, occasionally bumping into people, unable to apologize or say much of anything. I don't want to be this way. I'm lonely. I'm lost. I mean, I'm literally lost. I've never been in this part of the airport before. Wonder if these guys are lost too? Wandering around but never getting anywhere. Do they feel trapped? Do they want more than this? Am I the only one? This is my best friend. By best friend, I mean we occasionally grunt and stare awkwardly at each other. We even have almost conversations sometimes. This way,
0: uh. does that look vaguely familiar? <laughs> See, maybe maybe we're, we're zombies. Thus the start of this great little movie titled "Warm Bodies." is profoundly biblical, but I don't think that's because it's trying to be biblical. It's it's because it starts with a different assumption or proposition, and that is that maybe. We're already zombies. Remember the flowers on the table and the sermon a few weeks ago? We asked the question, they look so beautiful. What's wrong with these flowers? And then we asked the question, what's wrong with the crowd? And then we gave the answer. They're all dead. They look alive, but they're dead. Why? Because they're disconnected from the bush and the ground and the sun and disconnected uh, from each other. And what's wrong with the people in the crowd? Well, their, their individual bodies are healed, but they're still disconnected, disconnected from the head and disconnected from each other. You know, in the Bible, death is not the end. Death is being disconnected. Death is not the end. Something else is the end. Remember what the end is? Jesus. Jesus is the end, and Jesus is the life. Jesus is love and flesh, and love binds everything together. Love is a decision to bleed for your neighbor, and God is love. Corpses don't bleed because their hearts no longer beat. They no longer love. And we talked about the fact that Jesus doesn't just want to heal our individual bodies, which he does from time to time. He doesn't just want to heal our individual bodies. He wants to heal his body, which is us. He wants us to learn to bleed one for another. He wants us to love. In, in that little movie, there are living people, but they're on the other side of a giant wall, disconnected from the zombies. John Malkovich plays the leader of the living humans. In in this scene, uh, he's explaining the danger of zombies to some of the living. He's downright religious about his hatred of zombies and just might be more dead than any of the walking dead. You see, you can't save yourself from becoming a zombie by hating zombies. Corpses look human, they are not. They do not think, they do not bleed. Whether they were your mother or your best friend, they are beyond your help. They are uncaring, unfeeling, incapable of remorse. Sound like anyone you know, Dad? Hmm. That's Julie. She's about to go on a reconnaissance mission with her boyfriend, Perry. And on this reconnaissance mission, they bump into a pack of hungry zombies, including R. R.
1: are you? This is a corpse
0: infected with the plague. It is uncaring, unfeeling,
1: incapable of remorse.
0: I don't understand, but he's changing and he feels and he's learning to be human again.
1: Oh my God, is that him? Yeah. So. He started something with whatever it is that you two have. It's infecting the others. Dad, they're somehow curing themselves. They are not curing themselves. Come with me. Shoot on sight. We haven't preached.
0: I'm trying to summarize the whole movie with the trailer, But do you get the point? I mean, that's a pretty good theme for a movie. Love makes us human. Love is not a dead law on tablets of stone. Love is a person inviting you into a relationship. Love is a decision to bleed for your neighbor. Love is life, and Jesus is that life. Jesus is righteousness. So, repent! That means change your thinking, change your mind. You need a new brain. Jesus is about to expound the law in the Sermon on the Mount, the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge of right and wrong. And if we take that knowledge of the right in the wrong way, everything will die. But if we receive that knowledge as the gift that he is, we'll rise from the dead. So repent. Number one, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means all the ingredients are are right here. Number two, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the kingdom is a body. If we don't get that, we'll compete at righteousness, which is the very essence of wrongness. If we compete at righteousness, we make ourselves evil. Righteousness is not beating your neighbor, it's bleeding for your neighbor, it's love. And love binds everything together, writes Paul. Life is not a competition, life is a communion in one body, the body of Christ. And check this out, once you discern the body, to use Paul's words. Once you see that Jesus is the presence of the Sabbath, all things are yours and you are Christ, and that we are, in fact, his body, well, then laws about a life for a life and even an eye for an eye, they take on an entirely different kind of meaning. No one can take your life, for your life is Christ. Christ's life and the life is in the blood that constantly flows between every member of his body you can't take the blood if you are constantly given the blood you you can't take the bread of the presence if you are the bread of the presence repent look at this whole thing in a new way repent the kingdom of heaven is a hand the kingdom is a body and you're dead Until you're connected. You're dead until you lose your life and find it in one body. So most people are not living and afraid of death. Most people are dead and afraid of living because living is the death of death. (laughs) The second death. Living is losing your self-centered self and then finding that self lost in love, which is life, not your own self-centered little life, which isn't life, but the life of Christ that circulates through all creation like a river, a river of life. You're not connected until you decide. You're not connected, listen closely, until you decide to love. But you can't simply make a decision to love Because love is the decision that makes you. Love is God. And love in flesh is Jesus and his body, Jesus Christ. Christ in you, sitting on the throne in the sanctuary of your soul, and everyone's soul is how God fills all things, constructs his kingdom, and makes us in his own image and likeness. Christ in you is righteousness in you. Love in you, life in you in you. Christ in you is faith. And faith comes 100% by grace. And nothing, absolutely nothing is as offensive as grace. It is the death of your self-righteous, independent, empty and arrogant ego. In the movie, R's heart starts to beat, and he first begins to love because he's just eaten Julie's boyfriend's brain. And now you're thinking, okay, Peter, you had me, (laughs) (laughs) but now you just lost me. I am entirely offended. Are you? What's this? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, said Jesus. John chapter 6. We have the mind of Christ, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians. Where'd we get it? You see, I think, I think this is a zombie trap. in a, a vampire trap. The monsters we fear are the things we've already made ourselves. And the thing we fear most is what God intends us to be. And that's alive. And so Jesus offers himself to sinners and scribes and Pharisees and me and you at this table, we confess our sin, that on the tree, we took his life. Like Joe said, the worst possible thing you could imagine. I think every time we sin, that's pretty much what we're doing. He's hanging there for our sins. Every time we sin, we took his, his life. But also at this table, we, we, we confess that we took his life, and we also confess that he gave his life. We receive his grace, that on the tree he gave his life, and and that's the good. That's righteousness. That's life. That's love. This is the promised seed that comes to life. Comes to life in the depths of our soul, our dead soul, and takes he takes his place on the throne in the sanctuary of that soul. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son, if we're proud of love, we compete at love, crucify love, and walk in death. But if we're grateful for love, and I think that's why we're supposed to come here, if if we're grateful for love, we praise God for love, and we begin to love because, well, love loves through us, his body. We became we become agents of his new creation, agents of life, sowing the seeds of life, which are deeds of love. We live his life as he rises from the grave within us.
1: And we kind of learned how to live again. For a while, it seemed like a lot of us forgot what that meant. humans began to accept us, connect with us, teach us. This was the key to the cure. It was scary at first, but every great thing starts out a little scary, doesn't it? how it happened this is how the world was exhumed It's okay. I don't mind the rain. I insist. I'm. Mark. Marcus. Emily. You're. You're very pretty.
0: Thank you, Marcus. Now you're supposed to say, I'm pretty too. I love this cartoon Zombie encounter groups Whoa, I just had a near life experience (laughs) You see, if church is a place Where we try to make ourselves righteous And so compete at righteousness Will we crucify righteousness? And if that's what church is You should run away But if church is a place we confess our unrighteousness and thank God for his righteousness given to us, well, this will be a great banquet, and we will be blessed. We will be the salt of of the earth and the light of the world. Righteousness is not a law. Righteousness is our bridegroom. Righteousness fulfills the law Like a blood transfusion fills a dying body. Like a mind fills disorder with order. Jesus is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body. He did this before we could take it. He gave it. This is my body given to you, forgiven to you. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, my dear, in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. To come to this table, then, is to confess your sin and to receive his righteousness. Righteousness. Amen. So I know who you are, but maybe you've forgotten, because I've forgotten. According to the revelation, we exist here surrounded by a river of lies from the evil one's mouth. But our job is to remind each other of the truth You know, in the movie, R couldn't remember his name And they never revealed his name But I know who you are, R You are the righteousness of Christ That's literally who you are And now I know you you think something else. You believe the lies and you begin to think something else. But that's why we come here to church, to be reminded of who he is and who we are. And if the communists take over and outlaw Christianity and the church has to grow underground, we'll still be fine because that's what the church is. It's zombie encounter groups where we gather together in little groups and we remind each other of who we are uh, and and that's your that's your job to remind each other you are the righteousness of Christ and I know w- what you think you go yeah but I'm I feel like a blood sucking zombie yeah that too that's the self that you have made yourself to be and it's a lie and it's passing away. And and the way you kill it is not by competing at righteousness. The way you kill it is by feeding it the righteousness of Christ, giving it the mind of Christ, giving it the life of Christ. That burns away the evil and reveals the truth of who you really are. You are the righteousness of Christ. So, everything I'm saying is simply, believe the gospel. Amen.